Hello and welcome to the 3rd of May 2018 edition of Worcester Talking Newspaper. I'm Pippa Curtis, editor for this recording. As you know, I have been acting as editor for the last three months in the place of Charlotte Wanless. Sadly, Charlotte has recently confirmed that she will be unable to return to Talking Newspapers as she's going to be relocating to Kenya. It's pretty exciting. I think she's going in July. Um, And that and her new baby, I think, is keeping her very busy. Uh, On behalf of our team and the whole of Talking Newspapers, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Charlotte for her hard work and to wish her all the best in the future and for her future with her family. Thank you, Charlotte. So the team for this week's edition comprises Duncan Wynne as recording engineer, Carol Hartle on copying an admin, admin, and our readers today who are going to introduce themselves. So there is Catherine. Hello. Phil. Hello. And Evelyn. Hello. And myself. And we will read in that order. Please do keep sending us your feedback, uh, good and bad, as the team here wants to make the recording as pleasurable and relevant as possible for you. If you have any comments or problems, our telephone number is 01905 767 766. Please be prepared for an answer phone to take your call. As usual, we have the headline stories, followed by local news, sport, selected radio programmes, obituaries, thought for the day and the birthdays. And if we don't have a record of your birthday and you'd like to be included, please get in touch and we can add it to the birthday file. All the items follow on and you can stop and start them using the big buttons on your player. You can also hear the recording on our website, Worcester Talking News, that's all one word, .org.uk, which also has the magazine and past recordings. And, as I'm sure you're very aware, we now have the availability of the recordings on podcast, for which you need to download an app. And I've now lost the piece of paper which tells me what to do, but if I find it, I will read it out at the end. So there's that to listen. That's another way of listening to things. And the other reminder I have is about our library. It's free. It's constantly being updated. We can provide a list of the books available in the library, either in large print, hard copy, tape or USB stick. And again, if you need any more details about that, do phone in. So the main headlines for this week are, starting with the first one on the date of Thursday, the 26th of April, someone will be seriously hurt. Hell's Kitchen, cancer test on a night out saved my life. Medal Joy, heroin addict stabbed dad in the heart. And finally, Dad's anger as disabled son is told to leave show. So, if Catherine, would you like to start with the main headline story for Thursday the 26th? Yes, and the headline, just to repeat that, is someone will be seriously hurt. There's a very large photograph on the front page of a crash at Fourgate Street and Shaw Street, the junction between them. Calls are being made for urgent action to prevent crashes at a notorious city centre black spot after the latest collision caused gridlock and traders say it's just a matter of time before someone is seriously injured. Worcestershire County Council has said it will carry out an investigation into yesterday morning's crash between a bus and an Audi at the junction of Sansom Street, Shaw Street and Fourgate Street. 
The bus mounted the pavement and crashed through a railing barrier, taking down a Pelican Crossing lights pillar. Emergency services were called at around 6.30am and the section of Sansom Street where the vehicle came to a halt was closed for two hours, causing misery for motorists as routes into the city were gridlocked. The bus and Audi were recovered, but police officers were still directing vehicles around the crossroads three hours after the crash as the traffic lights were off. The incident is the latest in a string of crashes at the junction in recent years. In July 2016, firefighters had to cut a casualty free from the wreckage of a vehicle after a crash, and in January of the same year, four people were injured in a similar collision. In both of those incidents, vehicles went through barriers and crashed through the window of A Plan Insurance's office on the corner of the junction. After the latest accident, James Parker, branch manager of the insurance firm, said, This is the fourth incident I can remember in the last two years. Three times before, they have impacted our building. It is the nature of these crossroads, as there is no line of sight due to these buildings, which are all listed buildings. Mr Parker added that a metal barrier to stop vehicles mounting pavements should be considered, as the current barrier is purely just to stop people walking into the road. Worcester newsreaders took to our social media accounts and website to also call for action. For example, Laura Bailey Wharf said, How many more times will there be accidents at this junction and still no review? Shelley Givens added, This is the fourth crash this year alone. I live right on the corner of this junction. The crash was loud enough to wake me up. A reader on the Worcester News website added, I hate to use the word lucky, but the fact that no pedestrians were waiting to cross is a stroke of luck. A spokesperson for Worcester County Council said, we're aware of the crash on Fallgate Street and will be undertaking a full safety investigation into the site and circumstances. And now to Friday's newspaper with its headline of Hell's Kitchen, which is set over a photograph of the interior of the said kitchen and an inset photograph of the young man who is at the centre of this story. A former rough sleeper claims that he lived off takeaways after moving into a property without a cooker last year. Matthew Hatch Despecker, aged 29, said Fortis Living failed to refit his kitchen. He claims that left him with a shoddy kitchen with a layout that doesn't allow him to install both a cooker and a washing machine. He says he ate fast food for five months until he managed to install a cooker and is still living without a washing machine. However, the Housing Association said the property will soon be renovated, adding that the resident is responsible for his own home appliances. Mr Hatch Despecker of Rodborough Drive, Worcester, said, It's making me feel down about everything. The kitchen is meant to be the heart of the home, and if the heart is not working properly, how's the rest of the body meant to work properly? When I moved in a year ago, I was told I was due to have a few things updated in my house. None of it has been done to date. They said the kitchen was meant to be fitted up to date within two months of me moving in. He cannot fit a washing machine in his kitchen because the plumbing means it would be opposite the cooker. That would only leave 20 centimetres of space between the two devices, which would prevent him from opening the doors. He added, before I got the cooker in, I had to get food every day. It was costing me money and it was an inconvenience. I had to pretty much live off takeaways. Luckily, Mr Hatch Despecker was able to get hold of a cooker from his father, who lives in Thailand, in October. He said, my grandmother's currently helping me do washing. She collects it from me. 
If I can't get in touch with her, I have to go to the laundrettes in town, and it costs me about £2.50 per load. It's too expensive. He says he tries to avoid bothering his grandmother and does not have the best relationship with his mother. Mr Hatch D. Specker, who suffers from epilepsy and fibromyalgia, was made homeless in 2013 after suffering a mental breakdown and falling behind on rent. Fortis Living said it is not responsible for providing a cooker or a washing machine for Mr Hatch D. Specker and added that it plans to refit his kitchen this year. Mark Bell, the association's assets and compliance manager, said Fortis Living runs on an un- on an un- ongoing programme of kitchen replacements for our properties. The majority of these are unfurnished lets, which means it is the tenant's responsibility to provide and fit white goods and cookers. This particular kitchen is on our programme for this year and we will be meeting with the tenant shortly to discuss design options. Fortis Living says its refit programme, which includes new kitchen units, worktops, tiling, painting, sinks, flooring and lights, is running on schedule. Now the main story headline from Saturday, April the 28th. Cancer test on a night out saved my life. A father of two was diagnosed with aggressive prostate cancer following a chance screening while out with friends, meaning the test saved his life. Robert North went along to the Worcestershire Prostate Awareness WPA event at Six Ways Stadium on February the 20th. 2016, which included giving a sample of blood, which was then tested for PSA levels. Without going to that cancer screening, I wouldn't be here today, he said. It basically saved my life. I went in and put my £20 in the bucket, signed in and gave a bit of blood, and then went and stood and drank and smoked with my mates, Mr North, 54, explained. Two weeks after, I got a red letter saying that there was something wrong with my blood and PSA levels were high. It ended up with me going to the hospital and finding out that I had stage 3 stroke stage 4 aggressive cancer that had broken out into my lymph system. Mr North said his dad beat prostate cancer when he was 77 while his great-grandfather died of it. However, he said he never gave it a second thought until he received the letter advising him to visit his GP as soon as possible for further tests. I just stared at the letter and then I looked at the envelope and thought, they've put the wrong letter in the envelope, it can't be me, he explained. My wife's brother and sister died of cancer when they were in their 50s, so of course in her mind all she saw when someone was diagnosed with cancer was death. So I'm trying to beat that. However, two months later, the cancer started to come back, which meant four and a half months of chemotherapy and two months of radiotherapy. Thankfully, I think that's frightened it and it's gone into hibernation, he said. Having returned to work at financial services firm Taurus Wealth, where he is a partner, Mr North has also got involved with the WPA charity, After his initial operation, Mr North was told there was a 40% chance he would live for five more years, at which point three tumours were reforming. I've got to be realistic. It could come back at any time. So I just want to do what I can while I'm alive, he said. 
WPA was set up around three years ago by retired oncologist and surgeon Derek Fragley, along with husband and wife David and Dorothy Baxter-Smith. Working with various charities nationwide, WPA have carried out over 900 awareness events and done over 85,000 blood tests. More than 1,300 men who attended have, as a result, been diagnosed, treated and cured of prostate cancer. Mr North said, Derek was just getting going, but then he had a brain tumour and died last July. It left a big hole. He was doing everything in terms of administration and finances, setting up the events. I've got a vested interest because these events saved my life and now I'm making sure that the charity continues. My objective this year is to raise £30,000 for the charity. Donations when we're on the door come to £4 per head and the tests cost £15. So for everybody we test, we lose £11. If I raise £30,000 this year, it'll keep the charity going for at least another two years. A WPA event was held at Six Ways last Thursday, where over 260 men were tested, with the results coming <coughs> back that 18 needed to go to see their doctor because their PSA levels were high. He said, a PSA test is not indicative that you've got cancer. What it means is there is something wrong with your prostate, so go and get it checked out by the GPs or the hospital. Sometimes it's prostatitis, which is never going to kill you, and you'll be okay. I'm 52, had no symptoms, but it would have killed me within 18, eight months if they hadn't found it. WPA is one of Worcestershire Ambassadors' chosen charities for 2018. And the headline for Monday, April the 30th, Medal Joy. Man tracks down relative of soldier whose first World War award he found in his garden 30 years ago. After finding a first World War medal in his garden 30 years ago, a man has tracked down the great-granddaughter of the soldier to whom the award belonged. Mike Iacovelli was around 9 or 10 years old when he found the medal while he was digging at his old house in Buns Road, Worcester. Having emigrated to, to Toronto, Canada in 2004 with his wife Alison, Mr Iacovelli recently decided to try and find any remaining family of the soldier and posted it on a Facebook group, Worcestershire Memories. It has been treasured by me for many years, with my intention of one day finding the rightful owners and family who it once belonged to, he said. I recall the delight when I started to clean off the dirt and realised that this was not just another old coin for my collection, he explained, remembering when he found it. I convinced my mother to take a trip to Worcester Museum to see if I could get more information. Understandably, back in the early 80s, with nothing much other than the use of an encyclopaedia, there wasn't much I could find. He said the curator, although intrigued with my find, then showed him a plethora of medals of all kinds inside a glass cabinet. He explained the one I had was very common and pointed over to show me about 20 of the same, all nicely placed out on a tray. Mr Iacovelli had, however, discovered the medal was awarded to A.G. George Hammond 
a gunner for the 61st Division's ammunition column. Mr Hammond of St John's was the son of Elizabeth Hammond and died aged 24 on June 12, 1917 and was survived by his wife, Nellie Francis. Last week, Mr Iacovelli received a message from Worcester resident Tez Louise, who had seen his Facebook post and shared it on various local groups, tracking down Mr Hammond's great-great-granddaughter, Debbie Evans. Mrs Evans of Callow End, Worcester, said she couldn't believe it when she saw the post on Facebook group Worcester Old Town Picks. She now plans to give the medal to her Auntie Carol Griffiths, who lives in Bath Road and is the oldest member of the family, being Mr Hammond's granddaughter. I just got so emotional seeing the post on Facebook, she explained, having coincidentally been researching Mr Hammond recently, as none of her relatives know much about him. She tracked down a researcher from Tenerife, who was able to locate a photo of George and sent it to her, who she described as the absolute spitting image of my eldest son, Lewis. Using Mr Hammond's regimental number, Mrs Evans went to the Wargraves Commission and found out he was buried in Arras, northern France, close to the Western Front. Her dad was too ill to make the trip with the rest of the family, who went over to visit the grave in 2016 and pay their respects. As far as we know... We're the first family members to go and see his grave, said Mrs Evans. The cemetery has approximately 50 graves and is kept immaculately by the WGC and it's literally in a housing estate, she said. Before, no one really knew anything about him, who he served with, when and where. We were going to get his medals replicated through the correct channels, but finding the original is mind-blowing. Along with her husband Richard and two sons, Lewis, 16, and Macon, 13, Mrs Evans is moving to Boston, USA this week, but has informed her Auntie Carol that the medal will soon be on its way. What a lovely story. <clears throat> and this is the, the headline story for Tuesday, May the 1st. The headline is Heroin Addict Stabbed Dad in the Heart. A heroin addict suffering from abandonment issues killed his father by stabbing him in the heart, a court heard. Daryl Sampson has denied murdering his father, Robert, who died in Crookbarrow Road, Norton, Worcester, last year. The court heard he stabbed his father through the ribcage, punctured his heart and continued to attack him on the ground. Tahir Khan, QC, prosecuting, said the father, aged 63, and his son, 29, had grown apart since Mr Sampson separated from the defendant's mother in 1990. Sampson developed a heroin addiction in later life, and the relationship with his father deteriorated further when his father refused to pay towards rehabilitation treatment in Thailand in 2016. However, Mr Sampson agreed to meet his son last November in an attempt to sort out their problems. Mr Khan said he met his son to talk about their relationship, at least that's what Robert thought. He didn't know his son had come armed with a hunting knife. What he came for was revenge for what he perceived were his father's failings and failing to be a good father to him. He was a heroin addict. 
he blamed his father for his problems. Mr Khan added that Sampson's mum, Karen Thrower, his sister, Danielle Thrower, and his half-sister, Dominique Edwards, thought he had been damaged by his dad. He said, These women shared the view that Robert had abdicated responsibility. They firmly believe issues of abandonment had adversely affected Daryl's emotional development. He was upset his father was not there to help him with his heroin addiction. The prosecutor added that Sampson had previously told his father's fiancée, Deborah, that he hoped his dad would die. The defendant also claimed his dad had a history of abuse in a text he sent to Deborah on her wedding day. Sampson later called his father and asked him to drive him back to the UK as he was living with his girlfriend in Warsaw at the time. He had started injecting heroin in Poland and his family had become concerned for his welfare, according to the prosecution. However, Mr. Sampson, who had undergone heart bypass surgery after suffering two heart attacks, refused to transport his son due to ill health. Danielle and Dominique then stepped in and drove Sampson back home to Norton, near Worcester. While travelling home, Sampson spoke to his father over the phone and arranged to meet him at a bus stop near his mother's home in Norton. When they met, when they met, Sampson plunged a knife which he'd taken from his mother's house through his father's ribcage. The prosecution said one witness saw the defendant kicking his father in the head when he was unconscious on the ground. Sampson told a police officer at the scene he'd used the knife in self-defence after his father punched him, the court heard. However, Mr Khan contested that the defendant had not acted in self-defence. He said Sampson described the blade as the murder weapon when he handed it over to the officer. High Court Judge Sir Aklak or Raman Chowdhury is presiding over the proceedings and Rachel Brand QC is defending Sampson. Mr Sampson died on November the 16th last year. Sampson's trial started at Birmingham Crown Court yesterday and is due to continue today. Wednesday's headline is Dad's anger as disabled son is told to leave show. An actor has spoken of his disappointment after his disabled son was forced to leave a theatre performance because an audience member said he was distracting her. Harry Boniface, 25, was attending a matinee performance of Into the Woods at the Swan Theatre in the Moors, Worcester, on April 21st, in which his dad, Martin Boniface, was appearing. Harry and his support worker left the theatre after being confronted several times by a female audience member who said his noises were disrespectful and were putting off the performers, said Mr Boniface. Harry has multiple and profound learning difficulties and can't speak. Instead, he vocalises. He was enjoying himself and he was trying to tell the support worker what he could see going on. Mr Boniface of Drake's Broughton Pershaw said actors dressed as a cow and a wolf featured in the musical and Harry would often make mooing or growling sounds whenever they appeared. That's how Harry interacts with the world, through a combination of signing and noising noises. Mr Boniface described the support worker as absolutely mortified when the woman began turning around in her seat to shush Harry before pressurising them to leave the performance. She tried to explain, but the woman just turned her back on her. She wasn't interested and was very rude, he said. In the end, the support worker and Harry left early in the second act, which very much upset the latter. Mr Boniface accepts the noise might have been distracting to the audience member. 
He said the woman could have handled it better by speaking to staff as there were spare seats elsewhere. He said she was rude and discourteous. It is such an outdated attitude. It's a form of discrimination. But for her to speak for the whole cast on behalf of us, she had no right to make that sort of assumption. I was incensed. Nobody was bothered, nobody was distracted, nobody felt disrespected. He said the decision had been made to bring Harry to the Saturday matinee performance, traditionally held early in the afternoon, as it often attracts more children and is a less formal atmosphere. In fact, throughout the week, we have seen a number of people with special needs attend and thoroughly enjoyed themselves. It is great that we can bring pleasure to all people, regardless of their circumstances. In today's society, people should be more accepting and inclusive. We should be more accepting and understanding of people with learning difficulties. He emphasised that he is not speaking on behalf of the Swan or the Worcester Operatic and Dramatic Society. This is no reflection on the Swan Theatre. The staff were in no way involved, he said. They are a very inclusive organisation. I look forward to the day when this attitude is a thing of the past, and if this lady concerned is reading this, then perhaps it is her that should have left. Chris Yeager, chief executive of Worcester Live, which owns the theatre, said, The Swan is a totally inclusive organisation, and in these changing times we are extremely disappointed that a member of the audience should take such an enlightened view. Unenlightened view, sorry. Thanks, Phil. So those are the headlines for this week, and Eden's going to carry on with general news stories. Right, my first story is from Thursday, April the 26th. Girl groomed by man on Snapchat. A dangerous sex offender from Worcester attempted to arrange sex with a 12-year-old girl after grooming her on Snapchat. Worcester Crown Court heard Thomas Leadham, aged 24, had contacted the girl via the popular social media app, which lets users share photos and videos instantly. The snaps are only available for online friends to see for a limited time. He is accused of asking the girl to perform a sex act upon him. Leadham of Ombersley Road, Worcester, was formally arraigned by the clerk of the court, admitting attempting to arrange stroke facilitate the commission of a child sexual offence between March the 10th and March the 12th this year. The inciting offence involved a child under the age of 16, 12 years, and placed him in breach of a sexual offences prevention order imposed on August the 19th, 2013. He also admitted breaching the terms of the sexual offences prevention order when he appeared in court via video link from HMP Hewell on Monday. Leadham was jailed for nine years in August 2013 for sexual offences but had been released and was subject to licence conditions. Jason Aris for Leadham said his client had now been recalled to custody and would not be released from prison until 2022. Judge Jim Tyndall said, The question of dangerousness arises. In my opinion... This man is dangerous. There's a degree of grooming. Christopher Lester, prosecuting, said the defendant had asked the girl to perform a sex act upon him. He added, he believed she was 15. She tells him she is 15. She was 12 at the time of the offence. He requests pictures of her. She is reluctant to do that. 
Mr Lester said the sentencing guidelines suggested a starting point of two years and a range of one to four years in custody, but that was before aggravating features were taken into consideration. The judge adjourned the case for a pre-sentence report to be prepared by the probation service, reserving the sentence to himself. This is a story about a cyclist who's injured by a hit-and-run car. A keen cyclist says he was lucky to escape serious injury when his bike was hit by a car in a road on the Malvern Hills. And Richard Rolfe is keen to contact anyone who saw the incident, which took place on West Malvern Road on Saturday. Mr Rolfe was cycling up the road at about 11.15 in the morning, about 100 yards past the clock tower. He said... Ahead of me on the right was a row of parked cars. At this point I could see a car beginning to overtake me on my right. The car then began to pull in in front of me. At this point I thought, what a stupid place to overtake just as the road narrows. As the car was pulling in front of me I realised that it was towing a trailer. The front of the trailer made contact with the side of my bike and as the car began to accelerate I was dragged along for a few metres, attached to the trailer before I could free myself. At this point, I'd been driven into the curb and was sent tumbling into the middle of the road. The vehicle didn't slow down or stop. It is described as a small car towing an open-topped trailer full of cut holly. Mr Rolfe, aged 45, a senior lecturer in biology at the University of Gloucestershire, was left with grazing along one side of his body and bruising a sore back and arm. His carbon fibre bike frame is a write-off, costing some £2,000 to replace. Unfortunately, neither myself or any of the witnesses got any details of the vehicle. A lot of nice people checked to see if I was OK and if I needed an ambulance. All of the witnesses couldn't believe that the car had overtaken at that point and they couldn't believe that the driver hadn't stopped. I consider myself lucky that I wasn't left with more serious injuries. As I fell to the road, I remember making sure to move my legs out of the way of the trailer's wheels. This could have easily ended up with my injuries being a lot more serious. Mr Rolfe of Ledbury has reported the incident to police and is urging any witnesses to contact police, quoting incident number 355S slash 210418. He said, I'm currently off work due to my injuries and the pain that I'm in and I'll have to spend several thousand pounds replacing my bike. I was intending to cycle Mount Ventoux in southern France this summer and in the Stelvio Pass in Italy, but I'll now have to spend my money buying a new bike. This is a story about tours around Diglis Island, and the headline is New Tours Uncover Diglis Island Secrets. The secrets of the historic Diglis Island have been revealed after the first of a series of tours took place. The island, which is not usually open to the public, has been opened up as part of an arts project, The Ring, which celebrates the Worcestershire Circular Canal. The tours offer a limited chance for people to find out about the little-known island where 80 people once worked to maintain the nearby waterways. Among the first visitors was one woman who took the opportunity to explore the location because it has ties with her family that date back five generations. Photography-loving Emma Carlos of Gregory's Bank, Worcester, visited Diglis Island where her grandmother grew up. 
Mrs. Carlos said, It was really interesting. I wanted to go for a few reasons. I love art, taking photos, and because of the family connection. I knew that my gran was born there and lived in the house with her family, so it was pretty cool to have a nose around the place where she spent her childhood. The tour was led by a local artist, Rich White, and allowed members of the public to explore the secrets of the island up close. Mrs. Carlos, a COD technician for a local surveying company, said, Another reason I took the chance to go was because it's not normally open to the public. Mrs. Carlos's grandmother, Joan Carlos, lived at the dock house on Douglas Island and spent the first 23 years of her life there. Her father was the lock keeper for quite a few years. Joan Carlos passed away in February 2012. The island was created in 1844. During the Second World War, the island had barbed wire, trenches and loophole windows in place to help protect fuel deliveries. The Digless Island tours are available with The Ring, a group of artists in and around Worcester. People who used to work on the island when it was a working island were also involved. The next tours are on June the 23rd and August the 30th. The guided tours enable visitors to see different parts of the island, such as the stables. The Ring is a project running until September 2018, celebrating the Worcestershire Circular Canal that flows through the urban and rural landscapes of Worcester and Droitwich. For more information about the Diglis Island Tours, visit theringarts.org.uk. A political story now from Thursday's paper. The headline is Labour MP nominee axed. Labour will hold a new selection process for the city's parliamentary candidate after newspaper reports claimed its nominee was, quote, a fantasist. The party's National Executive Committee, the NEC, decided that Mandy Richards displayed a lack of judgment by not disclosing potentially embarrassing information about her past. The candidate came under a barrage of criticism this week after a Sunday Times article exposed her as, quote, a fantasist who has been placed under 14 extended civil restraint orders by the High Court. MP Peter Dowd said Miss Richards had been suspended from the party on the Daily Politics show yesterday morning, although a Labour spokesman refused to confirm or deny this. Former Labour MP for Worcester Mike Foster said, I'm relieved that the NEC has taken the correct decision for Worcester and for Mandy herself. I think it's now time that lessons have to be learned about the selection processes. With just over a week to go to the election, we have got to put this whole sorry saga behind us and concentrate on the next eight days and make sure that the local council is returned safely to a Labour council. Ian Cregan, the chairman of Worcester Constituency Labour Party, confirmed that Miss Richards will not be the party's candidate in the next general election. He added, I am satisfied that the NEC has agreed with my own view that failure to share information at selection is a serious breach. We are determined to give people in Worcester the choice of a first-rate Labour candidate at the next election and can now focus on that task. The Sunday Times reported that Miss Richards had made false and vexatious claims, quote, against several organisations. A series of conspiratorial t- tweets posted by Miss Richards were unearthed after the story broke. The contest will be rerun after a review of the selection process. Now a story of transport troubles. It's from Thursday, April the 26th and headed Parked Vans Block Buses. 
Police were called after bus drivers were unable to reach certain stops in the city because of, quote, inconsiderate parking. Officers were called to Canterbury Road in Worcester on Monday to ask drivers to move their vehicles. First group said the parked cars and vans blocked its buses from driving down the street for about 45 minutes. A 78-year-old woman of Lincoln Green, Worcester, said she waited at the bus stop at the junction between Canterbury Road and Liverpool Road for 30 minutes. She said the controller at Crowngate rang the police and got the parked vans removed. I was told by the controller that they were having trouble with vans on Canterbury Road. They were parked on both sides. People park on the road because of the houses. It's always been bad. The resident, who didn't want to be named, arrived at the stop at 3pm to wait for a bus. She had to wait until 3.30pm for a bus to visit a relative who lives opposite the city's Worcestershire Royal Hospital. She added staff at the hospital parked their cars at the top end of the road, exacerbating traffic problems. Sarah East, head of operations at First Worcester, said... On Monday afternoon, our drivers could not access Canterbury Road for around 45 minutes due to vehicles blocking the junction from Newtown Road. We communicated the situation with customers at Crowngate bus station and reported the matter to the police who got the vehicles moved. We apologise for any inconvenience caused through this brief period of disruption but the situation was out of our control with us not being able to access Canterbury Road. I would like to thank the police for their assistance in dealing with the matter. PCSO Dawn Wallace of Battenhall and Nunnery Safest Neighbourhood team added, The local policing team did attend Canterbury Road on Monday, April the 23rd, due to a report from first that their buses could not get through. Police attended and observed inconsiderate parking, but this was rectified and drivers given words of advice. The Worcester News reported in 2015 that buses were stuck on the road because of double parking, leaving a terminally ill woman trapped in a traffic jam. Some good news now. Members of the public have responded to an appeal for help from Worcester Food Bank after it revealed last week that demand for its services was at an all-time high. Graham Lucas, the food bank manager, said the number of donated items that it picked up from collection points at the Tesco supermarkets in Warnden and St Peter's was greater than normal on Friday. Mr Lucas said, The pickups were extremely full, which seems to indicate that people have heeded our call for help. It's always good news when we get a reaction. The increase came after we reported how the need for emergency food was at its highest since the charity opened its doors in 2012. Changes or delays to benefit payments and low household incomes were pinpointed by the charity as the main reasons behind the rise. The food bank expect more people to need need its parcels from October when the full rollout of Universal Credit reaches Worcester. Mr Lucas said... The public generally seems to feel that the system needs to change. We need a benefit system that works without delays and an economy that provides jobs which pay a reasonable household income. That is not the same as the minimum wage. 
The minimum wage per hour may be okay if you're working full time, but we see people who are on the minimum wage working 15 or 20 hours a week who are struggling to make ends meet. We hope that the level of support we get continues to be sustained. The food bank handed out just over 6,100 three-day food parcels in 2017-2018. And here's a story about a men's group at St Richard's Hospice. A men's patient patient group at St Richard's Hospice has been boosted by a £2,000 donation from a Worcestershire trust. The Henry and James Willis Trust made the grant for the Men's Space Group, which offers those under the care of the hospice the opportunity to take time out, go on visits, listen to guest speakers and share their experiences. Group members can be given support from other St Richard's services if they think they will be helpful, including benefits advice, counselling, complementary therapies and time with specialist doctors and nurses. Jill Swindon and Richard Underwood from the Willis Trust visited the group and she said the Willis Trust was originally set up in the 1940s to provide grants to enable Worcester people to have a convalescent break. In recent times, the trustees have looked for more ways to support those who've been ill or are living with life-changing health conditions to access information and therapies that can enhance their lives. The Men's Space Group is just the kind of scheme that the trustees have in mind and they are delighted to be able to make a grant to such a worthwhile project. Nick Moss, who attends the group, told the visitors this is a very outward-looking, lively group, always full of banter. It gives us a focus, enjoyment and an opportunity to share experience and fun with people in a similar position as our own. St Richard's Chief Executive June Patel said... We're very grateful to the Willis Trust for their donation to the men's group. They're a wonderful, inspirational group who really benefit from getting together and supporting each other. To join the men's space group, the person must have a confirmed life-limiting diagno diagnosis, a South Worcestershire GP, and be referred to St Richard's Hospice. Anyone can refer to the group including patients themselves and hospice staff will liaise with the patient's GP. For more information, please contact the Gateway team on 01905-763-963. Another recent visitor to the group was Mel Nichols, GB paracyclist and endurance wheelchair racer. Following her talk and discussion with the group, she said... I was very lucky to spend time with the most uplifting and positive group of gentlemen I can say I have ever met. I was honoured to be invited to chat with such an incredible supportive group. They're friends, full of banter and laughter, and they support each other through the good and the bad. I was deeply moved by such an inspirational place and people. They have given me an extra spark, and I will be taking them all through my racing as my in-mind support team. And now from Saturday's paper, dramatic headline, Drugs Bust After Chase. Three suspects have been charged with drug and firearms offences after a car chase. A grey Nissan car was brought to a halt yesterday afternoon by several police Range Rovers at the Six Ways Roundabout Junction on the M5. Eyewitness Alan A. Levy posted on the Worcester News Facebook page, Myself and colleagues saw the aftermath quite clearly from our office. There was a grey car that had hit the central part of Six Ways Roundabout. 
We don't know if it was from the police chase, but there were six marked police cars there when we watched very soon after, so we suspect it was a chase. A man jumped out of his car, scrambled down the central path of the roundabout. He was chased and dragged out by the police and promptly apprehended. An exciting part of a normal office day for us. Marie Fish said, We saw a Nissan car get stopped by the police and armed response units. The driver tried to escape and head into the central foliage of the roundabout. However, the police caught up with him. They stayed at the scene to search the car and surrounding area. Traffic was delayed for 30 minutes, approximately. A man who drove past the M5 Junction 6 roundabout at 12.40pm said he saw four police cars as well as one unmarked police car and a police van. He said there were also two ambulances while he saw the Nissan stopped at the scene. West Midlands Ambulance Service said a crew was sent out to the motorway but was not needed. Now a story about somebody crying in court. It's from Friday, April the 27th, and it's headed Cabby sobs over his trial. A taxi driver from Worcester sobbed as he denied being a chauffeur for a drug dealer or knowing that apartments he booked on the dealer's behalf were being used as a drugs factory. Shakur Hussein took to the witness stand on Wednesday and Thursday at Worcester Crown Court, telling the jury he thought that his regular fare, drug dealer Asgar Kalfa, was a car trader. Mopping his eyes with a tissue, the 38-year-old of Compton Road, Worcester, said he did not know that apartments at City Nights at Arena View, Birmingham, booked in his name, were being used as a drugs factory. Hussein organised the apartments after telling his passenger he could organise him a room in Birmingham hotels at a discount. Hussein denies conspiring to supply heroin and crack cocaine, possession of criminal property and production of crack cocaine. He told the jury he was Kalf's preferred driver. Hussein acknowledged Kalf had his work and personal mobile phone numbers. The father of three was arrested in a Mercedes taxi in Lovesgrove, Worcester on October the 16th last year with passenger Kalf, who gave a false name to police. In total, around £1,980 of cash was found in Hussein's taxi behind the front passenger seat. Kalf has since admitted his role in the conspiracy, along with Terry Melsom and Christopher Franklin. A police officer, DC Simon Lloyd, suffered a broken leg when he was struck by a car driven by Franklin on October the 16th, the day he and his passenger, Melsom, were arrested. Hussein, known as Shaq, broke down in tears, saying he had worked as a taxi driver for 14 years and was self-employed at the time of his arrest, but had previously worked for Central Taxis. He said a deposit of £400 into his Lloyd's bank account was for a raffle and other deposits in March last year were his earnings from taxi work. Money from this Lloyd's account was then transferred into his Barclays account which was used to pay his bills and mortgage. Hussein told the jury that £150 he paid into the account of the father of a convicted drug dealer was for a new phone. Sophie Murray, defending, said, D 
Did you agree to bring him, Kalf, to Worcester so he could deal drugs? No, I never, said Hussein. Did you suspect he was a drug dealer? Never once, said Hussein. Hussein described himself as not wealthy, with a car on finance, mortgage arrears, and a £1,700 credit card debt. The trial continues. Well, I've got a <clears throat> rather lovely story this week about well-dressing, which is something that I was only introduced to as a result of a book I read recently. She says, looking for the story. Um, which I'm not going to be able to... Oh, here we are, getting well, ready for well-dressing. So, here we are. More than 50 water sources across Malvern will be decorated by schools, community groups and families when the annual well-dressing festival returns over the May Day weekend. This year's theme is Year of the Woman, inspired by the centenary of women first being allowed to vote in the UK. Emma Green, well-dresser and a member of the organising committee, said... I will be commemorating local Malvern resident and suffragette Elsie Howie in my dressing. I can't wait to see what other people have created. The decorations on springs, wells and other water features across the town and hills will all be in place by Saturday, May the 5th, when the judges will be making their rounds, awarding gold, silver and bronze rosettes for the best dressed offerings. They will remain in place until the evening of Tuesday, May the 8th, when they'll be taken down by their creators. And this is a story about uh, a walk. More than 100 people took part in Malvern's first blindfold walk aimed at raising awareness about sight loss. The walk, organised by county charity Sight Concern, was led by town mayor Cynthia Palmer, who is herself losing her eyesight. She said, I was diagnosed with macular degeneration four years ago and I'm gradually losing my sight. I walked the blind blindfold mile so that I could experience some of the challenges that lie ahead. I thought the event was excellent. The weather was lovely and everyone seemed to enjoy the challenge. It really does make you appreciate the courage that sight-impaired people have to venture out into a world that they cannot see. Councillor Palmer set off from the Malvern Cube, leading over 50 pairs of people taking part in the event. The pairs, one blindfolded, one sighted, swapped over en route. The total raised at the event is thought to be at least £5,000. And my next story is headed Honours for Selfless Four. The Lord Lieutenant of Worcestershire presented British Empire medals to four pillars of the community during a ceremony at the Guild Hall. Susan Solis, Michael Amis, Jenny McGregor-Smith and Diana Murdy were recognised for selfless work by Lieutenant Colonel Patrick Holcroft in a service attended by Worcester Mayor Steve Mackay. Lieutenant Colonel Holcroft described the quartet as four outstanding citizens of Worcestershire. He said, thank you for your service, and I do so on behalf of the whole community, on behalf of the county of Worcestershire and the nation. Mrs Solis from Evesham set up the Tracy Solis Leukaemia Trust after the death of her 15-year-old daughter. She said, I accepted it on behalf of my daughter and in recognition of all the people who have supported myself over the years. I lost my daughter to leukaemia. She was diagnosed in 1993. She's the inspiration to myself and to everybody who knew her. She had a transplant which failed, unfortunately, and she kept saying, we need to show the other children that we can beat it. 
but she lost her battle. She didn't want it to be in vain, though, and it certainly isn't. Fellow recipient Mr Amos Pershaw is chairman of the Organ Donation Committee for Worcestershire Acute Hospital NHS Trust. He emphasised the need to register as a donor and to tell your family of your decision. The work that we've done must be carried on, he said, because we still have 6,000 people waiting for organ donations. Of all the people who've died who become organ donors, a large number do not go on to become donors because of the families withholding their consent. Mr Amy's daughter Catherine died in 2010, aged 37, while she waited for a kidney and pancreas transplant, but went on to save five people by donating her organs. Mrs McGregor Smith was given a BEM for services to the Bromsgrove community, while Mrs Murdy from Malvern gained hers for services to sport for visually impaired people. And a really happy story from Thursday, April the 26th, titled We're Off to the Wedding. Six people from Worcestershire have been invited to represent the county at the Royal Wedding next month. The lucky guests will be at the marriage of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle at Windsor Castle on May the 19th. They were selected from a dozen nominations by the Lord Lieutenant of Worcestershire, Lieutenant Colonel Patrick Holcroft, for making outstanding contributions to their communities. The group includes Kim Ball from Worcester, who retired in March after 15 years managing the cardiac catheter lab at Worcestershire Royal Hospital. She said, my first thoughts were, was it real? I messaged my son and asked if it was his idea of a joke. The following morning, I contacted the lieutenancy office and the Lord Lieutenant's PA confirmed that I had been nominated and yes, it was true. The date was already in my diary because it's a day I wanted to enjoy. Now I will actually be in Windsor Castle grounds. It's amazing and a day I will treasure. I feel totally shocked and honoured. Olivia Parson from Marley near Martley near sorry Marley near Malvern will be attending for her work co-founding charity Educate Encarende, which helps raise money to build a new school for the children of the Maasai Mara, Kenya. She said, I couldn't believe that I had genuinely been invited. It was very humbling to feel that the charity work I have done over the last few years has been recognised. It's such a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I feel as if someone is going to pinch me and tell me it's not real at any moment. Also on the guest list is Laura Gill from Worcester, who founded the Monday Night Club, a social club for adults with learning disabilities. She said... I'm so looking forward to it. I can't wait to see the children, George and Charlotte, all dressed up. Tilly Barker, 11, from Malvern, an Acorns Children's Hospice volunteer who helps others after losing her baby brother, and Lauren Walton, a young carer from Worcester who has looked after her father since she was eight, have been invited. And a local police officer who has not been named will also be there. And I'm going to finish the general news stories with um, a tale about a crossing that is still there one year on. A crossing that was set to be axed over a year ago is still there today. The crossing on Croft Road, opposite the Hive, and dubbed Worcester's Most Hated, was set to be removed last year following heavy criticism from the public. The public, as well as the university, criticised the crossing, which was put in place to provide a link to the Hive when it opened in 2012. 
Frustrated drivers described it as an accident waiting to happen, while some complained about the unnecessary traffic caused by a constant stream of people crossing the road. Last year, Councillor Simon Geraghty said that he wanted the crossing to be removed and replaced with a pelican crossing, using funds from the Council's £5 million fighting fund, set aside for projects to ease congestion in the city. Last April, he said, it will now be reviewed as part of that fund with the aim of putting in a pelican crossing instead. It's such a popular crossing with people who go into town, but you get dribs and drabs walking across, which becomes problematic. In October, it was confirmed by Worcestershire County Council that the zebra crossing would be replaced with a pelican crossing using traffic lights. It was part of a bigger plan to improve traffic across the city, thanks to a £3.2 investment from the Department for Transport. However, to date, the crossing remains unchanged. A Worcestershire County Council spokesman said, We appreciate residents' concern regarding the zebra crossing on Croft Road, which is located on a particularly busy stretch of road in Worcester City Centre. We are in negotiations with a number of partners to find the best solution for all involved. Well, I wonder how long that story will run and how many more times we'll be reading articles about it. So, Catherine, if you'd like to now start the roundup of the sports news, that'd be great. Yes, and here's a story about football in Malvern. Uh, The headline is Malvern's £1 million plans at their stadium. Malvern Town are pushing ahead with £1 million plans to enhance their ground and put in an artificial pitch. The West Midlands League Club agreed a rolling lease with landowners Malvern Hills District Council at the Langland Stadium in 2014. They also announced their Project 2020 bid, which remains on course to be completed in time for the 2019-2020 season. As well as the pitch, Morven plan new changing rooms for players and officials through a clubhouse extension, as well as improvements to the car park and ground entrance. Town estimate the project will cost around a million pounds with financial contributions primarily from the Football Foundation along with the council and the club themselves. Additional funding will need to be generated by town through donations, sponsorship and fundraising. Chairman Chris Pinder said, An ultra-modern artificial pitch and changing rooms deliver a pro-quality facility for the district for everyone to share and enjoy, along with a much more sustainable business model for Malvern Town FC. The stadium already sees a high footfall of users, especially at cup final time, but with with the pitch this will increase exponentially. Local adult and junior clubs like Welland and Lee and Bransford Badgers have either outgrown or are forced to overuse their grass pitch options. These clubs can share the stadium and maximise its utilisation throughout the year. Stadia with grass pitches simply cannot accommodate this type of wide-ranging community usage. These are exciting times for the club as we look to take things to the next level. Meanwhile, second-placed Malvern won 4-0 at Dudley Town at the weekend. Sam Rathbone, two goals. Sean Smith and Louis Loder scored the goals. And here's a story of achievement. City student set new archery world record. The student in question is Phoebe Pine, University of Worcester student, who's just set a new archery world record. 
The Great Britain competitor, who was born with spina bifida, holds the highest score in the world set from an 18-metre distance by a woman in her compound open disability classification. At a World Cup stages event in Nîmes, France, she got 562 out of a possible 600 points from shooting 60 arrows. Now her sights are set on a medal at the 2020 Tokyo Paralympics. It's very much the challenge I like, said the 20-year-old of Sirencester, who was in the first year of a sports studies degree in Worcester. I shot this score, which is great, but now it's about adding 10 points onto it. You're always striving to be as good as you can be. There's never a point where you think that it's been perfected. That's why I love sports so much. Pine rose from a total novice when she picked up a bow and arrow at 14 on a family holiday to a world championship silver medalist. I tried it and just wanted to carry on doing it, really, she said. Her condition affects her lower body, ability to walk and balance. It was a horrible first attempt. And I remember thinking, I can't hit a barn door but I really liked it. I think I just felt comfortable doing it. A few days later, she signed up to the beginner's course at Sirencester's Deer Park Archers Club, where she still trains. Two years on, Pine was scouted and joined the Great Britain Academy. She has recently been competing internationally, for example, in Dubai. Pine, who is supported by the university's sports scholarship programme, is preparing for the European Para-Archery Championships in August and next year's World Championships. She trains at the GB Archery National Centre in Telford, her club, and at home in the garden. Now a story about car racing. BTCC rookie Kamish in quick podium leap. Halfords USA Racing's Dan Kamish <clears throat> took just four races to leap from British Touring Car Championship rookie to podium finisher and potential title contender. He produced a standing, an outstanding display for the Droitwich team at Donington Park in the Honda Civic Type R. From fourth on the starting grid, he grabbed second in the opening race. Kamish led the second contest before being hauled back to fourth spot, then battled for fourth in the third race, but contact forced him out. The 29-year-old two-time Porsche Carrera Cup GB champion marched up from 16th to 7th in the standings. Teammate Matt Neal qualified 17th, but progressed to 6th in the opener, 16th in the second and 7th in the third for 17th in the, in the championship. Kamish said, It was fantastic for both the team and myself to achieve our first podium of the season in race one, although I would say as a performance, race two was arguably even better, with 66 kilograms of ballast on board and the harder tyres. People were asking pre-season if I would get properly stuck in and get my elbows out in the BTCC, and I think I've proved here that I can do that as well as anybody else. Neil said it was a much more positive outcome than at Branch Hatch, and we remain light going next to Thruxton on May the 20th, which has traditionally been a happy hunting ground for us and will be an important weekend as both Honda and Oasis home circuit. The race wins were shared by Josh Cook, championship leader Tom Ingram and Adam Morgan. Evesham's Rob Austin is ninth in the standings after finishing 15th, 21st and 11th at Donington. 
I'm going to read an <clears throat> article about Worcester Warriors, um, but I do apologise in advance. I don't know how to pronounce this name, so um, I hope I won't cause offence. It's Irish, and it's Doncha, is that? Yep, fine. Okay. Director of Rugby, Alan Solomons, said he was overjoyed after Worcester Warriors retained their Aviva Premiership status by registering their biggest win of the season. Warriors proved too strong for Harlequins as they scored seven tries in a stunning 44-13 victory at six ways. The bonus point triumph for Worcester condemned London Irish to relegation as Solomon's men moved 14 points clear of the drop zone. I am absolutely delighted, said Solomon's. We made the point right at the beginning of the week that we wanted to be masters of our own destiny. We didn't want to rely on someone else doing it for us. We have done it ourselves, so I'm really pleased about that. The match saw club captain Doncha O'Callaghan bring the curtain down on his glittering career and Chris Pennell makes, make his 200th appearance for Warriors. Everybody knew that it was Doncha's last game and Chris's 200th, but our focus was about making sure we were masters of our own destiny, Solomons continued. Then the byproduct would be that they would have a successful day. I thought we kept to that theme throughout the week and that paid dividends. I'm overjoyed that we know we have sealed our place in the Premiership for next season. And here's another football story. Uh, trophy joy for Fernil, Fernhill Heath. Fernhill Heath Athletic won the McDonald's Worcester and District League's Catherine Rea Cup with a 5-3 victory over Northside. Division 1 side Athletics stunned their Premier Division opponents by racing into a 2-0 lead after 17 minutes of the final, with Sam Carey grabbing both goals. When George Coley made it 3-0 on the hour, the game looked all over, but Northside fought back to 3-2 with strikes from John Dovey and Sam Yap. However, with Northside throwing everyone forward in search of the equaliser, Luke Malloy raced clear to restore Athletic's two-goal cushion. Malloy netted again five minutes from time to make the game safe. Right, now I stress before I read this that this is from Friday's newspaper, so this article was written before the game with Nottinghamshire, which, if you're a cricket fan, you may know, didn't go entirely to plan. Boss up for home clash, it reads. Kevin Sharp is relishing his first home game as Worcestershire head coach and is confident his players will come to the party against Nottinghamshire in the Specsavers County Championship Division 1 today. Sharp once scored 260 not out when captaining England under-19s against West Indies at New Road 40 years ago and that will always be a memory to cherish for him. But taking charge of the club he has grown to love during the past four years for the first time at their headquarters is also special for Sharp. He said, of course, being captain of your country against the West Indies was a big occasion. To get 260 not out on this ground will always be something to look back on with pleasure. And I could have had the chance of 300 if we hadn't declared at tea on the final day. But the first home match as head coach is also going to be a very special occasion for me. The first home game of any season is special and there will be a lot of anticipation. This is my fifth year here. I've come to love the club and I really enjoy the people who work here. You look over the ground and the cathedral from the dressing room balcony and it is one of the most beautiful cricket grounds in the world. So who wouldn't want to work here? 
Worcestershire have lost their opening two games as they followed their 196-run defeat at Hampshire with an 83-run loss at Somerset. However, Sharp believes his side will bounce back against Nottinghamshire, who Worcestershire edged out to win the Div 2 title last season. The clash will also see overseas signing Travis Head make his home debut, while Ross Whiteley has replaced Steve McGoffin, who has been rested as a precaution due to a tight hamstring suffered against Somerset. I should imagine there will be a decent crowd here this week, Sharp said. Knots are obviously a strong, high-profile team, and we will relish that challenge. I'm sure they'll bring a few members with them, and we just want some good weather. The lads will be ready, they have been preparing well for the game this week, and I'm quite confident that although we haven't won a game yet, these lads will come to the party. Worcestershire will be hoping to improve in the field after a sloppy display at Somerset. The difference in this game was we actually dropped a few catches, and that cost us dearly, he added. We dropped James Hildreth four times, and these lads are good players, you can't really afford to do that. No one drops a catch on purpose, and I can't fault the way we prepared and the work ethic. It's a game. So it happens now and again. And now a short story about great achievement with potential reward. It's headed Adams Up for Young Player of the Year Award. Worcester Warriors star Josh Adams has been shortlisted for the Rugby Players Association's Sanlam Young Player of the Year Award. The 23-year-old wing will be up against Gloucester's Jake Poledry, Exeter Chiefs' Sam Simmons, Harlequin's Marcus Smith and Wasps' Jack Willis for the top prize. Nominees must be 23 years or younger at the start of the season. The trophy is named after Harlequin's and England's scrum half Nick Duncombe, who died in 2003 from a rare form of blood poisoning, aged just 21. The winner will be revealed at the RPA Awards dinner on Wednesday, May the 9th. Adams has scored 17 tries in 24 games for Warriors this season and made his debut for Wales in the Six Nations. This is a big honour for me, said Adams, on me being nominated. I'm extremely delighted and definitely didn't expect this recognition from my peers. It's been an amazing season and I have been working really hard to improve my game. And uh, to show we do diversity in sport, the last story I'm going to read is about netball. No surprises there. One of my favourite sports. Worcester Reds won 31-29 at Oaksway to secure the highest final position in their history of sixth place in England Netball Mizuno Premier One. The relegation-battling Hartlepool hosts brought three Super League players into their team from Team Northumbria, but the results sentenced them to the drop, despite direct play and tight defence, forcing an 11-2 first-quarter lead. Reds had been disrupted by the northeast side's tactics, but 17-year-olds Frere Lines and Alice Crump helped their comeback. Player of the match, Danny Perry Huggins, restricted Oaksway as goalkeeper alongside the flying interceptions of goal defence, Rachel Sweet. Dogged determination by Reds put them on the front foot and six-foot-three-inch Perry Huggins was moved to goal shooter alongside Cathy Bedney to combat aggressive defending. Worcester continued to eat away at the deficit and then edged the win with Hayley Rudd returning in the fourth quarter as goal attack and teenager Lizzie McGecky making her debut in defence. That's a good story. 
Well, that concludes the sport for this week. And so we'll move on to our radio choices, if you are OK with that, Catherine. These yeah. are all taken from the Radio Times. So. Right. Well, um, I'm looking at the Radio Times for Saturday, the 5th of May. And I'd just like to draw to your attention, first of all, on Radio 4 at 10.30 in the morning, a half-hour programme called The Kitchen Cabinet, which you may already be familiar with. This is where Jay Rayner presents the Touring Culinary Panel Show, and this time it's from the end of Cromer Pier in Norfolk, with Annie Gray, Andy Oliver, Jordan Burke and Paula McIntyre answering questions. Also on Radio 4 at 9 o'clock in the evening uh, is a dramatisation of a novella by Henry James called The Aspen Papers. Uh, it's an hour long. It's from 9 o'clock to 10 o'clock. Um, it's, it's actually repeated from previous Sunday, so you may have heard it, of course, already. But um, this is a very interesting book set in Venice and uh, well worth listening to a dramatisation of it, I should have thought. Yes, I've gone for two things on the 6th of May, which is Sunday. One of them is Book Club, which is on Radio 4 at 4pm. 4 and they're talking about Norwegian writer Joe Nesbo's The Snowman, a Scandi-Noir novel taken, it says here, to the darkest degree of obsidian, but a bit of horror and violence thrown in as if the brooding suspense were not enough. And then the audience is going to be invited to ask questions of the author. Uh, and that sounds like it should be pretty good. I will also make a point of catching the drama on Radio 3 at 7.30, which is The Winter's Tale, which I studied at school and hated it. But I see that it's got the wonderful Eve Best in it and also Susan Jameson. So that may well be worth catching. Right. Two from Monday, the 7th of May. First of all, um, Radio 2, 10pm, and also for Tuesday and Wednesday, as well as the Monday programme. And it's Kylie Minogue from A to Z. This is Kylie Minogue as never heard before. Media savvy caution gone. But it's also a lesson on how a good celebrity interview should be conducted. Kylie's obviously comfortable and the premise is fresh. It's not a chronological review of her career. Instead, she's fed 26 subjects to discuss, such as A is for accolades and awards, then permitted to think about the connection she makes. Graham Norton may well be the host, but this masterpiece is the work of producer Malcolm Prince, whom she thanks in person at the end. It really rewards listeners. Just wait until N is for neighbours. And then for drama, also on the 7th, that's 2.15 in the afternoon on Radio 4. And it's a great favourite of mine, Rumpole. Uh, Rumpole and the Golden Thread, a new series. The first is at, on Monday. And it's adapted by Richard Stoneman from John Mortimer's plays. While in Africa defending an old pupil in a murder trial, Rumpole is arrested. Philida is sent to rescue him, and this is the first of the three final episodes of this long-running Radio 4 series, Something to be Savoured. Mm. A couple of selections um, I'd like to share with you for Tuesday the 8th of May. Uh, the first is on Radio 2 at 11pm. 
called The Organist Entertains, and after nearly 49 years of consecutive broadcasts, Nigel Ogden introduces the last edition of a programme he's presented regularly since 1980. And for the final show, he is the featured organist in a diverse programme that includes music by Ponchielli, Sanson and Cole Porter. And the other programme is at 11am on Radio 4, Is Eating Plants Wrong?, Pioneering plant scientists claim plants can communicate, learn and remember, and that they even have regional dialects. Hmm. Botanist James Wong asks if it is therefore wrong to eat them. That's going to make life tricky if you're a vegan, isn't it, if you can't eat plants? <laughs> well, um, I'm, I'm looking at Wednesday the 9th of May, that's next week, and, and we're clearly an offshoot of the Kylie Minogue fan club here because, like Evelyn, what I'd selected for Wednesday was uh, Kylie Minogue, uh, the third of her programmes at 10 o'clock in the morning on Radio 2, and by this time in the week, ahead of her 50th birthday on the 28th of May, Kylie Minogue reflects on her life and career by addressing key topics alphabetically. She concludes with the letters P to Z as she discusses parlophone records and her love of touring and performing live. My other choice um, that I'd like to recommend is something that I shall certainly be making a note of is on Radio 3 at 7.30 in the evening. Radio 3 in concert from the Lighthouse Pool, the uh, Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra and uh, the pianist Simon Pachesky um, will be playing the following concert. Elgar's Overture in the South, Tchaikovsky's First Piano Concerto and Walton's First Symphony. Right, and now to Thursday, the 10th of May. There's At 8 o'clock on Radio 4, there's a celebration for Ascension Day to mark the day on which Christians celebrate the risen Jesus' ascension into heaven. The Reverend Dr. Sam Wells leads a service from St. Martin in the Fields, London, with preacher the right Reverend June Osborne, and they're going to play Mozart's Sparrow Mass and some compositions by Finzi. Then later on the same evening, on the same channel, um, there's um, a comedy by John Finnemore. John Finnemore is very hot at the moment. He writes very funny pieces normally. Um, this one stars Alison Steadman and Izzy Sutty, and it's called John Finnemore's Double Acts. Should be good. Right, now Friday, the 11th of May. First of all, uh, musically... Um, Composer of the week is Boulanger. Um, I don't know whether they mean both uh, Nadia and, or, and her sister Lily, but this one is about Lily Boulanger. Um, she had a very short life, suffered great ill health, and was not as famous as her elder sister Nadia. But this final instalment of the series um, looks at her frustrated attempts to finish writing an opera prior to her death um, and its very interesting take on her musical outlook and the connection her music makes today. Right, also on Radio 4 on the 11th of May, um, in the afternoon at 3.45, it's just this struck me as interesting as a concept it's a series called short works and in three spins a wednesday it's a short story by the irish writer danny denton 
B spends her evening driving back and forth and round the same roundabout, dropping off and picking up various family members, only to find her own thoughts inevitably circling back to an unspoken secret. So that concludes our um, Radio Times selections. I do hope you like our recommendations. They are certainly diverse. We will now read the obituaries. So, Catherine, if you could start with them and we'll go around the table. Uh, Nigel Bayliss passed away on April the 5th and the funeral service will be at Worcester Crematorium on Friday, May the 4th at 3.15pm. Honour Webb, nay Garrett, um, passed away on March the 21st 2018 and the funeral will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Thursday May the 3rd at 3.15pm um, Sally Wilkinson Riddle nay Elt uh, died on April the 16th 2018 the funeral will be at Worcester Crematorium on Thursday May the 3rd at 4pm Ralph Edward Gardner uh, passed away on Easter Sunday, April the 1st, 2018, and the funeral service will be at Bromwich Road Mission Church on Tuesday, May the 8th at 1pm. Barbara Doreen Aston passed away on April the 26th. The funeral service will be at Worcester Crematorium, May 22nd at 10am. John Brooks passed away <coughs> excuse me, on April the 7th, 2018, and the funeral service will be held at Worcester Crematorium on Friday, May the 11th at 3.15. Anita Elizabeth Jones passed away on Tuesday, April the 10th. The funeral service will take place at Our Lady Queen of Peace Roman Catholic Church, St John's, on Friday, May the 11th at 11 a.m. Mark Lewis passed away peacefully on April 7th. Funeral service will take place on Wednesday, May 16th at 12.15pm at Worcester Crematorium. Lionel Huband passed away suddenly on Saturday, April the 21st, 2018, aged 84 years. The funeral service will take place at Alfred Church on Friday, May the 4th at 12 noon followed by interment at Suckley Churchyard. Taylor, formerly Dennis, Elsa Alice, passed away peacefully at St Richard's Hospice on March the 28th, 2018, aged 72 years. A celebration for Elsa's life will take place at Elim Pentecostal Church, Lifehouse, Lowesmore, on May the 12th at 2pm. Jean Anne, known as Gina Kernock, formerly Sheen, passed away suddenly but peacefully at home on April the 15th. A service to celebrate her life will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Wednesday, May the 16th at 1pm. Joan Margaret Harris sadly passed away on April the 14th, aged 92 years. The funeral service will take place on Thursday, May the 17th at St Mary's Church, Hanley Castle at 12 noon, followed by the burial within the churchyard. Roger Anthony Phillips passed away peacefully at the Lawns Nursing Home 
on April the 17th, aged 73. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Thursday, May the 10th, family only. Alan Stone passed away suddenly on April the 7th, aged 74. Funeral to take place at Worcester Crematorium on Wednesday, May the 16th at 11.30am. Molly Warner, née Mannion, peacefully passed away on April the 13th, aged 83, after a short illness. Burial at St John's Cemetery on Wednesday, May the 9th at 10am. We have one more from Evelyn, I believe. Terence William Terry Wakefield passed away peacefully on April the 17th, 2018, aged 81 years. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Monday, May the 14th at 1.45pm. So that concludes the obituaries. Um, I have finally found that notice about podcasts, which I will read to you because it does explain it rather better than my garbled prose at the beginning of the um, broadcast. So it says, we would like to remind listeners that this week's recording is now also available as a podcast, which can be accessed online for free on an Android or an Apple device. You may listen to this week's podcast or other previous podcasts, all from the same platform, which can be accessed whenever and from wherever you are from your preferred podcast app. If you don't already have a podcast app, they're very easy to download onto your phone or tablet through the App Store or Google Play. So that's what the future holds. And coming up as well, we've been asked to highlight this. Um, it's come in from one of our listeners, Ian Yonton, about Worcestershire, well, I think it's, well, Worcester Elizabethans. It's a cricket club that has a visually impaired team. And Ian says that if anyone is interested, please do get in touch with him. Their next friendly match is this Sunday, the 6th of May, 1pm at home. And I will give you his phone number should you be interested in more information. It is 07599 I've watched cricket of that kind and it's wonderful stuff so worth going along so I think we have two things left to do um, Catherine if you'd like to do thought for the day and then Philip if we could run through the birthdays that would be lovely sorry Evelyn you're doing birthdays yes yes Catherine thank you Pips right um, the reading for this week the thought for the day is from 1st Corinthians 1 5 18 for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now for our birthdays, and we have three in the coming week. On the 6th of May, we have Marilyn Kendall. On the 7th of May, Evelyn Stevens. And on the 8th of May, Cynthia Walker. And we wish you all a very happy day on your birthdays. Happy birthday from us all. And that concludes tonight's recording. I would like to thank everyone from the reading team and our production team for doing a great job. So it's goodbye from Duncan, who's waving from the recording booth, and the team members. It's goodbye from me, Catherine. And me, Philip. And me, Evelyn. And from me, Pippa. And it just remains for me to say it's bank holiday weekend coming up, and I hope you all have a lovely extra day 
days holiday on the Monday and I think the forecast is set to be fair. <laughs>